Hi, I'm Amy Halpern-Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is William Stroud. He was the founding principal of two New York City public schools, the Urban Peace Academy in East Harlem and the Baccalaureate School for Global Education in Queens. He is currently an international education consultant and lifelong student of political economy. He has worked as an instructional leader and trainer in schools around the United States and in Jordan, Mexico, Palestine, Poland, Thailand, Brazil, and Turkey. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Bill, you said that within our current school systems, it's possible to create individual schools that are great, but that these will be anomalies until there are larger changes. What do you mean by that? The current systems, well, we've seen really the educational system really exists within the framework of larger society. And fundamentally, the education system today is designed around test scores and a culture of mistrust where many of the policies from state education departments or from school districts, the relationship between those institutions and individual schools is really dictated by the standards movement, um, accountability measures that rest fundamentally on, on test scores. But they're also reflections of large, the way larger society is organized. So for example, here in New York City, we have highly segregated schools, which exist throughout the country. So I think that as a society, we have a lot to be desired. And within that larger framework, there's a possibility for individual schools to create spaces for adults and children and families to have really wonderful experiences. But the way the overall system is constituted is more of a reflection of the larger society, which is stratified by wealth and income and race and class. So I think that one of the things that we have to think about is how to create new systems or networks of how schools work together. What do you mean by a culture of mistrust? Well, that's the so the leadership model that is mostly implemented, I think, reflects corporate hierarchy. When I was a principal, I'm trying to remember what year this was, I think must have been in the late 90s, the Department of Education brought in Jack Welch from GE as, to talk to large groups of principals about leadership and what they suggested, some of his specific suggestions at the time were we should be able to eliminate 10% of the teaching force because the bottom 10% shouldn't be there. And it was very much based on supervision. The supervision model has been part of the training of educational leaders for the longest. But I think the mistrust is enforced partly through compliance. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there are not some good intentions in all this to make sure that there's adequate sort of educational experiences for students, special ed students or English language students, or that, that they're given attention within the school system. 
But in all audit cultures, which the accountability system is basically an audit, audit culture, what happens in those cultures is that people come to see the work as performing to the audit rather than the actual content of the work itself, which is teaching students, collaborating with colleagues, creating an institution within a community that's highly valued. But the fundamental driver of the actions in, in accountability or audit cultures becomes the record keeping and the compliance and the attention to the value added measures and accountability systems. And so the purpose of education really becomes undermined. None of us became teachers or school administrators because we wanted to make a lot of money or because we wanted to answer to a group of supervisors around test scores uh, um, or the compliance issues. So I think increasingly sort of what we've seen in a corporate model of leadership is that there's very defined hierarchy. People see the district superintendent or the principal as educational hero. And these, even in the research literature, you can clearly see these are not effective ways to create good schools. You just mentioned desegregation or the segregation of New York City and other schools. Mm -hmm. And you said that desegregation would be one of the most powerful quality assurance steps that a system such as New York City could take. Could you elaborate? What's that mean? And why would desegregation be one of the most powerful quality assurance steps? Well, I spent a few years at Columbia Teachers College with a research consortium and looking at the characteristics of high quality schools, high performing schools, classrooms, schools that are performing or school districts that are performing sort of at higher than expected levels. And in the research literature, it's pretty clear that desegregation has resulted in, even in accountability systems, higher levels of student achievement generally for schools in those districts. So you see, for example, Wake County, North Carolina, Berkeley has desegregated according to sort of zip code because of the sort of legal issues involved around quotas that people object to or that have become illegal through the years. But we see that in, in integrated classrooms uh, and integrated schools and districts, generally the level of student achievement is higher than their neighboring schools in desegregated or in segregated districts or segregated schools. So I think there's research evidence around that. It's Wake County, for example, for several years had good results and and there ended up being a political backlash by the community. I would assume, I don't know a lot of the details about it. I would assume it's the sort of white community that didn't want to desegregate and objected to their students traveling across town to other schools or on buses. But, but there's quite a bit of evidence that desegregation results in better outcomes for all the students in a district. 
how does the culture that surrounds these schools impact the schools themselves? Hmm. Well, I think I'll, I'll speak to the issue of segregation. It, it's been my experience. I don't know that I could generalize about this, but I'll talk about my experience for a couple minutes that diversity in all its forms is a condition for learning. So that when you have a segregated system or a segregated school, there's a tendency for the kids to experience very similar kinds of life conditions and thinking and attitudes and understandings. And I think part of learning is sort of challenging our ideas and our presumptions and encountering people who have different experiences and listening to those experiences and understanding what that means for people who are our neighbors or we live with or live in the same cities, but sort of challenging sort of our routine daily ideas, I think is part of the learning process, sort of that cognitive conflict that exists. So diversity is, whether it's ethnic diversity or a diversity of opinions, that if you, we have people who share the same ideas or hold similar opinions, I think it's less conducive to more learning than we would have in, a, in more diverse settings. But the, we live in a highly segregated world. The neighborhoods are, our neighborhoods are segregated, even in cities. I was watching something about Milwaukee last week and in the great migration from the South to Milwaukee, in spite of the fact that there's an African, uh, significant African-American community in Milwaukee, it's a highly segregated community as the neighborhoods in New York City we've seen with redlining and the housing issues. Um, so I think when we come out of that environment, most of our experiences are formed through our family connections initially when we're young and then our, our neighborhood environments. And that's what children bring with them to the schools. So whatever the issues are in the neighborhoods we come from are the issues that come into the schools that we deal with. There's a lot of talk about schools changing society. And I think that needs to be examined more carefully because fundamentally schools are more a reflection of society than a transformation agent. When we speak about diversity, um, certainly currently we're talking about mainly about racial and ethnic diversity, but I'm not sure that that is the same thing as ideological diversity. True. So, yeah. So I think that when we talk about learning and how learning benefits from a lot of ideas, right? right. So we don't just get one version of anything. Um, we're not really talking about people of different races. We're talking about people with different thoughts. So how do we separate the two? Well, this is sort of one of the great myths that there's some monolithic 
white culture or black culture and we're seeing all those myths challenged these days um, the diversity of ideas in all ethnicities is is vast what we one of the problems that we've seen in our country in the last years is the entrenchment of political ideas and people seeing each other as antagonists rather than human beings with different points of view trying to understand what people where people are coming from what ideas and values they hold and how to go forward if we're going to try to live together and make a better world in some way but i think that's a particular challenge for us now because there seems to be an inability of people who hold different political ideologies or opinions or goals to be able to talk with each other and communicate in a real way rather than being locked in their positions or being sort of stuck where they are. So I want to continue talking about culture. You said when we were talking before the show that local or national culture is one of the most powerful forces on schools. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Well, this is something that I became more aware of in the work I do internationally. And I'll mention something that we had talked about, which, what was really eye-opening. And then I realized sort of in different cultures and contexts, there's a similar power. But um, the last three years, I've been working quite a lot in Thailand on a science inquiry project where we would ask students and teachers to, to create questions around science content, and, but science ideas generally, but questioning generally as a, as a classroom practice is fundamental to inquiry. The ability for teachers to ask good questions, for students to ask good questions about content of themselves, of the teachers. The, the culture of Thailand is, and I'm, I'm generalizing from sort of my limited experience and the snapshots I have working. I've been probably in 30 or 40 schools in Thailand for a day or two at a time in most of the schools. Um, but I've never seen a student ask a question in a Thai classroom because asking a question is equated with questioning the authority of a teacher or a principal or an authority figure. So as a learning mechanism, asking questions, which is fundamental to learning and inquiry in particular, is very hard to enact in Thai culture in, in the schools. So, so what do those classrooms look like then? Are they conversations? The class, did you say the classrooms? The Thai classrooms. No, they're very teacher-dominated. It's not unlike... It's interesting in that classrooms all over the world have a very similar format. Basically, the teachers talk a lot. The students talk little. They're often organized in, in desks that you would see in the United States or Thailand or Jordan or Poland, rows of of desk, it's sort of a ubiquitous format for classrooms. Um, the teachers use 
the chalkboards in front of the rooms that have now become with more modern technology, smart boards. You see smart boards and um, screens a lot in, in classrooms. I think I had mentioned to you in, when I was working in Palestine, sort of the significance of modern education was indicated by the number of smart boards that would exist in a school, but the sort of the basic teaching and learning methodologies hadn't changed very much. The teachers use the smart boards to do a lot of presentations. The, the students are sitting and watching. It's a very passive sort of learning environment in many ways. That can be transformed, but, but it's the, the hierarchy of adult relationships with children and who's in control, this notion of control about supervisors controlling principals who control teachers who control students. We see pervades school cultures all over the world. So you were, in terms of Thailand, um, you had also mentioned that you had talked to some people and asked them what, what they wanted students to take away from their education. I found your, your answer really fascinating. And, and how does that compare to what you see in the United States? What do we expect students to take away from their education? Well, in the U.S., the evaluations are fundamentally based on test scores. So teaching to the test has taken over a big part of U.S. education in schools. I think in most of my work in the United States has been in, in cities and sometimes in sort of underserved communities that on standardized tests have sort of lower scores and that becomes more of a priority because that's how you're judged as a school. It's probably less pervasive in middle-class or suburban districts that are have more resources. But it's the other incredible thing I find in United States schools is the level of competition that students engage in, like this idea of the highest possible grade point they can get and, you know, doing all these activities to enhance their resume for their college applications. And there's a whole system built around achievement and competition and who gets in and who doesn't get in. In Thailand, when we work with schools in Thailand, we've, we've created networks of schools. And one of the first things we do or the first day when we enter schools is we, we set up focus groups where we talk independently with groups of students, groups of teachers, groups of administrators, and try to have get as much information as we can. One of the questions that I initially ask in, with all of the teachers and administrators, we're working either in schools that have grades six through nine or kindergarten through nine, and I ask them, you have children here with you for several years. What's the most important thing that you want students to learn while they're here? What's the biggest takeaway for you as, as adults in a school? And what was remarkable to me was that the answer was the same or a slight variation of the same answer without missing a beat. People would always say, we want our students to be nice. We want them to be nice to each other. We want them to be good citizens. And I think, I mean, it's deeper than that. Like at surface level, it's interesting. What does it mean to be nice? 
or good citizens, but I think, you know, for them, it means being respectful. It's respectful to the royalty. It's respecting your elders, but it's also treating each other with kindness. And when I come back, not just for you, John, when I come back and talk with teachers here in the United States, they're always a little bit taken aback that that's the primary takeaway that the adults value. So it's, we know that in the United States, at any rate, some schools develop many cultures that are not driven by the values of the dominant culture. Under what circumstances do you see that these schools can survive within larger systems? Some years ago when I worked in the research consortium, it was, I was sort of the token, I don't say that in a negative way, I was the token practitioner with a group of, in a small group of really excellent researchers. But we worked on sort of applied research. Can we take sort of the findings from experience and accomplished educators and from the research literature and develop programs to, for school improvement? Um, one of the things that we were committed to at the time was that school cultures were based on principles, not personalities. Uh, that we thought that if we could organize schools with commitments to a set of principles, guiding principles, and for their decision-making, that the sustainability of these cultures would be much longer lasting than, than otherwise. And what I have found is that school cultures are fundamentally aligned with with the leaders, with the leadership of individuals, that when individuals leave, school cultures change. And there are some ways to address that. When I, one of the schools I started in, in New York City was an international baccalaureate school. The international baccalaureate has a set of standards and practices that have to be maintained in order to keep your accreditation as an IB school. So I thought, all right, this is gonna keep the school culture, which it largely does. However, at the time when the, the school was created, we were committed sort of in probably what would have been challenged legally by the chancellor's office of one quarter black, white, Latino, and Asian. And the school over time has become um, probably a 95% white and Asian student demographic. So the commitments of individuals is largely defines, for better or worse, school cultures. And, but I think still today, having a, an explicit set of principles and maintaining those or, or a platform like International Baccalaureate, where there's certainly the academic standards and practice remain intact in that school. It continues, students continue to do well there. But I think it's very difficult for school cultures to survive beyond the leaders of the schools in the system that we have. You no doubt have examples of that that you have experienced yourselves. Like when Debbie Meyer, for example, left Central Park East, you know, over five or 10 years, it changed dramatically. We, you know, we probably have lots of examples like that. Yeah. The pandemic has led to an acceleration of trends toward online learning. 
what will be the impacts of greater online learning? Hmm. I'm not a fan of online learning. I think we have to find ways of educating children and, and adults that does not rely on online learning. So my, my fundamental sort of objection to online learning is, you know, it's based on the relationships of, that exist in a capitalist society more generally. So what we see in capitalist society is that technology has become a mechanism that mediates relationships between human beings. And that fun, so in industrial production, the workers become an appendage to the machinery and the, and the industrial line, uh, the division of labor. And we've seen in office, the development of technology in offices where a lot of craft skills have gone by the wayside in an, in an attempt to become more efficient and eliminate labor costs. And, and the technology in all fields comes more and more to dominate the design of the work and the relationship that human beings have to each other. My fear that in online learning is that it's going to continue to take control out of the hands of teachers so that teaching is sort of part craft, part science. Science in that we know from sort of research evidence that there's some things that impact relationships and learning more than others, more effectively, that are more humane, that result in higher achievement. I mean, it's a, it's a craft also in that it's individualized to the students that you have sitting in front of you and understanding who they are and what their needs are and how to best address those in order to achieve the goals. If the extent to which technology has sort of the learning process, the teaching steps the, and the results and the moves that teachers make embedded in the technology itself so that what teachers become more and more required to do is enact the te technology with a group of students and that they're interacting with students through the technology. It's another step of detachment between human beings that I think is inhumane. Hmm. I want to challenge you a bit on that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> sort of see technology as like nature. It's neither good nor bad. You know, people say, this is all natural as though that's a good thing. Well, you know, nature brings us tsunamis and, you know, <laughs> all sorts of bad things. So I guess I see online learning as sort of a world in itself. And while there is a danger of the technology itself taking over the learning process, I do think that as teachers become more accustomed to it, that there will be a way of personalizing the learning process uh, and making it humane. I mean, clearly there are pitfalls and, and weaknesses, especially given the larger society and given the fact that we have a wealth gap and we have students living in apartments that they don't, that embarrass them or where they don't have privacy or where they don't have bandwidth, you know, their internet access. So, Sure, there are a lot of problems with it, but I do see teachers sort of developing ways to 
to create humane spaces. True. I think that exists, and I hope you're right, and I'm going to argue with you on a couple fronts. First, that the technology exists within a bigger culture and a bigger context, which, you know, my claim is that these cultures are fundamentally based on mistrust. So that students are largely rewarded and have been for a long time as much for obedience as and not making a fuss as their knowledge accrued and their ability to think and and become accomplished and knowledgeable in certain fields. But and also kids learn to get by by staying under the radar and being obedient. But the technology that the big question that you raise for me is is technology really a neutral factor in human development or is the technology designed specific to social systems and values that reinforce that system and i would like to think that you're right in the sense that we've made all kinds of progress around technology and efficiency and and speed and the ability to make calculations and have information available so that if we lived in a different society that wasn't fundamentally class-based and hierarchical based on income and race and ethnicity, could we use the existing technology to create a better world? I think that's what we would hope for that in the hands of a, in a different power structure, we can use that technology differently. I'm not sure that the technology would look the same. If we valued each other as human beings and had, you know, were really fundamentally attuned to supporting each other and caring for each other and providing for people according to their needs in a way that doesn't exist, would the design of the technology in that society be similar to what it is today? And I think not. I think the technology is based on speed and scope of information and immediacy and detached from human values in a way that is detrimental to us today. And uh, I hope we get a chance to test and see if under a different power structure, technology can be implemented differently. As you're talking, it reminds me of a book I read many years ago that I don't know, it might even be out of print now, and it wasn't particularly about education, but it was um, Harry Braverman's Labor and Monopoly Capital. And he was talking about how technology in the United States is used to de-skill. Whereas he gave an example, I believe it was from Sweden, where strong unions were able to be involved in the development of the technology in, I think, the auto industry. And they were able to shape how the machinery would build on their strengths rather than be focused on their, on their de-skilling. You know, it's a fascinating book. I think it was published around 1974 or, or thereabouts. But I like that book. 
and it addresses sort of white collar work, right? The de-skilling of office workers and the introduction of technology into the labor process and what it's and household household work. That also, every also. new technological development is supposed to free quotes housewives. Right. And in fact, what each one of them did was to de-skill, make housework or work in the house more boring, uh, make it more tie it more into the commercial world, which of course happens with technology in schools as well. So, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I haven't given this a lot of thought, but the two of you raising this sort of fascinates me in that if increasingly there's, well, the assumption would be that we have more free time as human beings, right? And then that free time would be more valuable than working. So what First of all, I'm not sure that there is, with all of the technological development over the last 50 years, do we spend less time at work? My guess is not. So it hasn't really freed people up. But secondly, what do we do in that free time? In in the world that's designed for us now, it's fundamentally about consumption of commodities that we can buy, often junk commodities or frivolous commodities, but through the advertising sort of world, we're told that we need all these things all the time. So free time becomes how can we engage in the economic process of consuming more and more during our free time rather than using our free time in different ways. So that's one issue. The second issue is if there's more free time and less work, what's the, how are people going to have an income that they're able to survive and and what 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 are the implications for sort of the disparities of wealth and income let me take a stab at that great so as first of all i think that we or at least a lot the dominant society still takes the protestant work ethic seriously so the more time we spend working the better it makes us better people. This is uh, way different from a doing approach to ethics. You know, we wouldn't necessarily think that working 12 hours a day is a good thing. When we look at the impact that that has on our families, our communities, humans, animals, other than human, the planet. None of the categories does working 12 hours a day create benefits. So as a society, we should be able to work fewer hours because we're more productive. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, so that just requires either an evolution or a revolution and a different framework. And once we do have free time, I think culture also has to evolve to, to empower us to, you know, to stretch ourselves. For example, we have an unfortunate emphasis on excellence. So a lot of us don't do anything unless we're really good at it, right? Um, Art, for example, which is integral to many cultures, is not integral to the dominant culture in the US at all. If you create art, you're an artist, but it's not normal for regular people to just make art or to make music, you know, past your piano lessons until you're 12 years old. 
So I think there are a lot of opportunities for people to derive a lot more from their relationships, from their, their hobbies, from their communities, if given that time. But we don't, we certainly don't value that in our society. We value busyness and working. I would like to live in that world you're envisioning. But I think this is, I mean, this is really sort of the point of our discussion here, right? Is like, if we have the ability to envision this and the means to do it, and in particular, schools are socializing agents for what kids learn to do and what to value and where they come from and who they can be and what their possibilities are, how do we in schools become more human, more humane in that process rather than what exists today? So as you're saying, you know, that's not what's valued. Is it, po and it's also why I say we can create individual places where schools can do that. I think those are anomalies, unfortunately, because the greater society sort of dictates who we are and the structures that we work within, bad systems make good people do bad things. And we have bad systems all around us. One of my stepdaughters asked me recently, you know, are there any good systems for human beings under capitalism? And I was hard pressed to think of one. You know, it's interesting thinking about this issue of free time, because I think that are, and this relates directly to schools, I think there's a deep distrust of free time, especially towards kids of color and working class kids. So that, you know, this all of this, I remember a number of years ago, and it may still be happening, I just haven't heard of it recently, but there was this whole push, you know, to push black kids in particular and poor kids generally into boarding schools. Because the idea is that you would be taking them away from their destructive, you know, family and community environments, similar to what was done with Native American kids, is you're going to take them away and control their environment and make them whatever it is you want to have them become. And I was thinking in terms of, for example, Finland, let's say, or perhaps Denmark, where some of the, I mean, Finland already had this in terms of, you know, shorter school days and time for kids to spend more time outdoors, whereas those seem to be, you know, all the pushes here are for longer school days and to right. make summers more school-like and so forth. Do you see any ways in which the pandemic, if people push for this, could end up having any positive consequences in terms of how we view school time? And what happens in the schools? Yes, I'll say something about that. What you're talking about with it, what the two of you remind me of is sort of the forms of colonialism have changed over the decades or century, but really we're talking still about sort of the, the adaptation of colonial forms of taking kids out of their neighborhoods, like in schools, removing young children from their communities and putting them in boarding schools, or John, as you mentioned, the Native Americans, and and those tendencies are still all around us. They've just sort of 
changed in superficial ways, but the basic sort of substantive relationship may not have changed so much. I was on a webinar a couple weeks ago with two Danish professors who were talking about the experience Denmark had had during COVID. And they closed down the schools and kept everyone at home for, I don't know if it was two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. And, and I went on the webinar because one of the professors had written a book called Teacher's Relationship Competence, where the book is fundamentally about the, a fundamental condition of learning is this relationship of knowing each other between teacher and students and trusting each other and able to challenge kids in a way where they don't feel threatened and shut down. But she was on this webinar and I thought, all right, given the COVID era, how would she describe building relationship competence through virtual learning, which seemed to me to be a contradiction. And she didn't address that so much. I would like to correspond with her more, but they did say three things that they felt had been positive outcomes for the school systems in Denmark. One is they said, and and the children are really only fully back in school, if we call it fully back in school, in elementary grades. I think middle schools, secondary schools and are not fully back in school. The first thing was that class size got smaller, that rather than having groups of 20 or 25 students because of the virus, they were only allowed to have groups of 10 or 15 students, 10 or 12 students in a classroom at one time, and that there was much more attention to individual students and relationship building. In that relationship building was attention to sort of hygiene and taking care of the classroom in a hygienic way and the health of everybody and attention to sort of, is everyone okay? And in and, and ways that hadn't existed before the virus. So one was the impact of smaller classes. The second was they spend much more time outdoors, which is just lovely because kids sitting in classrooms all day long, moving from classroom to classroom is just a terrible way to treat young people. I remember my youngest son, his first day of school, when he came in, I said, Daniel, how'd school go today? He said, oh, it was just awful. And it had me quite worried. And I said, well, what was awful about it? He said, I had to sit in my de- at my desk all day long. And that was his main concern. Um, so the second thing was being outdoors a lot. And the third was they have shortened school days, which they saw as a big advantage because it connected the adults in the school to the lives of kids outside of the classroom in ways that they wouldn't because so the attention wasn't like all the learning happens inside this classroom or in the school building. So I thought all three of those things are interesting. Um, We talked about this a little bit on sort of in our introduction before this call that, you know, how that applies in a society that's highly segregated and stratified with income and resources isn't clear to me that there's the same kinds of benefits. Hmm. Uh, Aside from the pandemic, we're experiencing 
a movement for black lives or what we hope will be the first stage of a movement for black lives. What do you see as the effects of this on schools? What's clearly in our face is the Black Lives Matter movement challenging the social institutions that dominate our lives. It calls into question, so do these institutions serve us and can we create something better? And clearly the answer with, with COVID is that, you know, with the defunding of public hospitals and healthcare and that public institutions have suffered and we've seen since 1980 have become increasingly privatized. And with that privatization is uh, more disparity and more stratification of, of resources and quality of life between poor and rich communities. I think the Black Lives Matter movement fundamentally challenges that. And it provides sort of the impetus for us in schools to do something because a protest movement, it doesn't unto itself create new ways of being together or new forms of social organization. Those have to be developed out of that movement. So we're in a period of time where those institutions are challenged. It's clear that there's a significant, if not a, ma a majority of people who believe that there needs to be some transformation of those institutions. What we'll see, as we've already seen, is the dominant culture in these dominant organizations will try to sort of incorporate the, some of the ideas in the movement and where it will appear that they're responding in some progressive social way where we see some token efforts. But I think for a school system, it provides the opportunity for us to fundamentally rethink what education institutions look like, how they're organized, what we call schooling, in a way that can be much more radical than we'll ever have a chance to do again. But again, the, the protest itself is not going to change the world. What will change the world is us figuring out in very practical ways how to create new structures. For example, we can abolish school districts that have sat like superstructures on the back of schools and educators and students for decades now and find new forms of being together for networks of schools and embedded schools and communities in a more localized and decentralized way, that's not going to happen by the movement itself. That's We need to sort of get behind the movement and be able to create these more practical things in ways so that we're not recreating what existed before in slightly altered form. Have you thought in concrete terms what that might look like? in terms of following through on the vision of creating a different way of organizing schools? A little bit. Sometimes people ask me sort of, you know, what, what's the organizational form? And I think if we're talking about education for democracy, that there has to be some attention to building what I would call a constituent assembly, like abolish school districts 
get representatives from schools, maybe using community school districts that have existed in, in New York City or neighborhood organizations, but religious organizations, community organizations, um, technical support providers, but fundamentally, people in schools should be getting together and thinking about what forms of organization they want to have work together. I think district offices with lots of well-meaning people are an enormous waste of resources. We would be better off putting people in schools rather than in the districts. And that if we had a constituent assembly of some sort, eliminating sort of this division of executive power and sort of rulemaking and implementation, but that it becomes decision-making by the practitioners themselves, making decisions about how to get together and what forms that takes and what the guiding principles are. But if it's truly a decentralized democratic movement, there's nobody's going to come in and say, you know, here's the model that we're going to use going forward. What we need to do is bring people together to develop those systems. Bill, is there anything we haven't talked about today that you'd like to mention? So the one thing that's been on my mind most recently is sort of this question that I had mentioned to you. What's the role of public education in creating an, an intelligent citizenry? Because the lack of an intelligent citizenry more generally is in our face in this era. I think we talked a little bit earlier about sort of schools as a reflection of society and, and the strength of schools being features of society more generally and the problems that schools, that we encounter in schools also being defined by the larger social context. So issues of racism and sort of discrimination and levels of achievement are inherently part of what we face in schools and won't be changed until you know there's fundamentally a different social context. The political crisis is really a function of the economic crisis and the disparities of wealth and opportunities, um, the alienation that people feel. But we've done a really poor job in public education of just creating a baseline for people to be able to distinguish between fact, fact and fiction and being able to sort of weigh evidence or make claims and supported by evidence, being able to evaluate different points of view. We live sort of in an era, as you know, where opinions, sort of all opinions somehow get equal validity and, and it makes no sense. So we end up with, you know, with leaders like Donald Trump or DeSantis or governors who, who are able to present themselves in policies that are not in the interests in the general public interest. And we have not been able to educate people in a way where the citizenry consistently uses their minds well or cares as we mentioned before about the common good 
and that associates freedom somehow with the having to wear a mask uh, rather than even Roosevelt and the four freedoms, uh, freedom of speech and worship, you know, the freedom to not live in fear. Um, but just, I think we have to, we need to rethink what the curriculum of schools are and be able to address some of these fundamental issues that impact the quality of life in ways that we're not doing now, rather than the big focus on testing. Well, I understand what you're saying in terms of teaching students to discern fact from fiction. Mm -hmm. How can we get them to care? Why do you ask such hard questions? It's my job. Um, wow. What a great question. All right, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to answer this in any way to your satisfaction. I think particularly sort of in underserved communities that there's not a direct connection in kids' mind about the relevance of schooling. That it's school is something that's sort of, that's disconnected from their lives in some way. Middle class and kids of upper class or professionals, I think see schooling as a way to achieve something, but kids in underserved communities have come to understand that we don't really live in a meritocracy. Um, that that disconnect in what's going on in school in their lives has to be addressed in some way. So that if in fact, a couple things, one is if, if the content of school curricula became more attuned to the issues that impact the quality of their lives. They would see a, a different connection and have a different motivation. Secondly, in most schools, there's very little place for kids to determine sort of what they study and what they're interested in and how to pursue that study. It's all sort of a defined curriculum that I think we need a better balance between what we understand kids need to know in order to function in society and to be able to go into academic studies, but also have a place for a significant place in the school day for kids to be able to pursue their own interests and study and answer questions that they have themselves. Um, I, the re it's interesting, the research literature on this really is more connected to the teacher's relationship with kids than the student's own ability to choose a course of study, that kids have higher levels of performance when teachers are really motivated and passionate about the subjects that they're teaching but this lack of connection between school and everyday life, I think is systemic. So they don't, they don't see the relevance. Do you think students would have higher levels of caring if they felt that their teachers cared more? I mean, is it all about- Yes, yeah, I think that's part of it. Now that you're asking that, Another, so something I experienced in Thailand, most of the work I do is in 
smaller schools and in rural schools and almost all of them, the focus has been middle grade. And when I go to schools in Thailand, often in the countryside, if I get there at like 7.30 or seven o'clock, half an hour before school starts, there will be students carrying water from a well or a water source in buckets to all the different classrooms or filling containers of water. And, you know, when I, after lunch, if I asked, when I first started working there, if I asked, you know, I wanted to say thank you to the kitchen staff for making the lunches that we had. And I would say, where's the kitchen staff? And it was the teachers in the school that had made the lunch. And outside the classrooms in the schools, there's a chart what students are responsible for bringing supplies to the class and for cleaning up after the class and at the end of the day. But the point being that it's much more of a self-sustaining, caring community for each other about how do we take care of ourselves. It's built into the routines and cultures of school that we don't have here. Sounds um, like a family. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So that that topic that comes up about, you know, how do we create a sense of community and caring that isn't, ex that exists for kids in their lives someplace, but doesn't extend into the schools, I think is something that needs to be addressed explicitly, but kids have to be involved in that discussion and be able to be part of the decision-making about how we do that. Otherwise, it's just another thing that adults are imposing on young people. Well, thank you very much, Bill Stroud. This has been a fantastic interview. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you, listeners. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops and classes. And we work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Till next week. <laughs>